deep in most of our hearts, we all have a desire for greatness. We want to be a part of something great, or we want to be great ourselves. I hope that you can acknowledge that this morning. Uh, It's okay, I think, in many ways, to want to be great. You want to be a great parent. You want to be a great friend. You want to be great in your vocations. You want to be great at your hobbies. Most people don't set out just to be average. The desire that most of us have for greatness is very human. In this passage this morning, Jesus is talking to us through this conversation that he had 2,000 years ago with his disciples about what true greatness is. What does it mean in the eyes of the creator, God, to be great? How can we pursue and attain the kind of greatness that Jesus wants us to have? Notice, he doesn't reject here in this story, as we'll see in a moment. Jesus doesn't reject our desire for greatness, but he does redirect our desire for greatness. He turns the values of the world upside down as he's prone to do here in redirecting our desires and our understanding of what true greatness is. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Dr. King, as he usually does, nails it there. He hits the nail on the head as the summary of the message of Jesus Christ for you and for me this morning through this portion of Scripture. Now, we've been making our way through Mark's gospel. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus ask his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that is the turning point in Mark's gospel. From that moment forward until Jesus dies, he begins very clearly and very specifically to teach his disciples about his coming passion. The word passion means his suffering and his death, and then after that, his resurrection. We saw that he did that in chapter 8, and here again in verses 30 through 32, Jesus teaches his disciples about what's going to happen to him. And interestingly, in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus three times, according to Mark, tells his disciples about his death. He says, I am going to suffer. I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of wicked men. I'm going to be crucified, and after three days, I'm going to rise again. And each of those three times, his disciples just don't get it. And in fact, they all say or do something really stupid every time in these three chapters that Jesus teaches them about what's going to happen to them. Today, what we see the disciples doing in a response to Jesus' teaching them about his coming death, his coming service for the world in his death, we see the disciples responding by arguing about status. They are obsessed with a worldly view of greatness. And so what Jesus is attempting to do in this story is remind and teach his disciples that true greatness is about service to the world and not status in the world. 
Jesus himself exemplifies that for us, and he has to pound it over the head of his disciples, and he has to pound it over our heads as well. And so maybe a way to summarize everything that Jesus is communicating through this story this morning is this. True greatness does not come through status, but through service. Okay, that's the big idea. True greatness does not come through status, but through service. Let's break that statement down into two parts, and that'll be our outline for the morning. So first, I want to show you true greatness does not come through status. Secondly, true greatness comes through service, okay? So Jesus tells us first that true greatness does not come through status. Now, in most of your English Bibles, these verses that Rachel read are divided into two paragraphs. There's 30 through, or 33 through 38 or 37, and there's 38 through 41. And in each of those stories, we see in different ways the disciples desiring desperately to be great. We see them obsessing over a worldly view of greatness, however. Their view of greatness is that greatness equals status, power, achievement, Let's look at how the disciples manifest that tendency here in our passage. First, we see that even as Jesus is telling them about his suffering there in verse 31, that they just aren't able to comprehend it. Look at verse 32. Mark tells us the disciples did not understand the saying that Jesus is going to die, that he's going to suffer, and they were afraid to ask him. You know, they they understand enough to be afraid to ask to understand more here. But then immediately afterwards, Jesus tells them these things. He says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to serve the world even unto death. And then on the highway, as they're making their way to Capernaum, they're arguing, the disciples are. They're bickering. They're fighting. And Mark tells us that they were arguing with one another, verse 34, about who was the greatest. So we see right away that these guys don't have any category for a Messiah which is what Jesus has claimed to be, and they've professed him to be. They don't have any category for a king, for a Lord, for a Christ who is also a servant. For the disciples, a Messiah is the conquering warlord. He's the one coming in on his white stallion and taking over. So a suffering Messiah for the disciples is a contradiction in terms, right? It's like an honest politician, or, a, or an educated Aggie. You know, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. Sorry to the politicians. Aggies, uh, not so much. They don't get it, right? It's a, it's a contradiction to them. And then immediately they begin to show what they think true greatness is, what they think the Messiah, the Messiah should be like by arguing themselves about who is the greatest. It's amazing here. Jesus is talking about weakness and betrayal and death. And their minds are obsessed with things like power and authority and control. Just imagine, imagine what it would have been like walking on the road with the disciples towards Capernaum. You know, possibly they've overheard, well, clearly they've heard Jesus talk a little bit about himself dying. And maybe they're thinking, well, that's too bad. I want, who's going to run the show after Jesus is gone? And they look around, say, Peter. Peter looks around at the rest of the group and, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm the best man for the job, right? I'm clearly the greatest. And you can imagine, remember, Peter, James, and John were the ones that saw the transfiguration a few verses back. And you can imagine the jealousy that would incur from from the other disciples. So maybe their conversation goes something like this. Peter's like, well, clearly, 
I'm the number two in charge here, guys. If Jesus dies, don't worry, I'll take over. After all, I was up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've seen things that you guys haven't seen. And then one of the other disciples probably responded with something like this. What are you talking about, Peter? We've seen transfigurations too. There have been other transfigurations. You just didn't, Jesus decided not to tell you about those. You're not important enough. But he took me up onto a mountain too. So they're, they're obsessed with their status. They're obsessed with one-upping the other. They feel jealous. They feel, feel envious. You know, it's kind of like... Uh, what C.S. Lewis talks about, uh, about pride in his book, Mere Christianity. What he says about pride in Mere Christianity is that pride is essentially competitive. And that's why he calls it the great sin. That's the title of that chapter. He says pride is not content with just having money. Pride, rather, is only content with having more money than the next guy. And the same thing is what we see with the disciples here. The disciples aren't just content with walking with Jesus and knowing Jesus. They want to walk closer with Jesus than the next guy. They want to know Jesus more than the other disciples. They're full of pride. They're obsessed with a worldly view of greatness, with status. It's not enough to be with Jesus. They want to be closer with Jesus than the other disciples. And so Jesus asked them there in verse 33. Of course he knows what's going on, right? What were you discussing on the way? And Mark tells us that they were silent. They're too ashamed, rightly so, to even say anything to him about it. They don't learn their lesson right away, however. Look in verse 38. Here we see sort of a second piece of evidence that the disciples associate greatness with status. Now here John is singled out. And we read that he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we saw this other guy casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. And then look at what the text says. Because he was not following who? Us. Can you believe that? He was not following us. John, speaking for the rest of the disciples, is saying here, there's this other guy from a different denomination of apostles, maybe, you know. He's he's on the same team of us, but he's not part of the same tribe as us. And he's doing ministry. It's important that Mark says it's ministry in the name of Jesus. It's good ministry. It's successful ministry. Demons are being cast out. And John is trying to shut that ministry down. And he's trying to shut it down not because this guy's teaching heresy. He's trying to shut it down not because this guy is unauthorized in some official way. He's trying to shut it down because this guy is not a part of John's little clique. And he feels jealous. He feels angry. He feels like his status is being called into question. You see, the disciples evidence here again that they at this point believe that they have been chosen by Jesus because they are somehow special or distinct and that their status as disciples renders everyone else out of bounds when they do ministry even good ministry. uh, John's so bold here that he he even says the problem with this man is that he is not following us. Sure, Jesus, he can be following you. Sure, Jesus, he can be doing ministry in your name. But my issue is that he's not following us, and that brings my status, my status into question. You see, for the disciples, for the disciples, it's all about them. It's all about their ability. It's all about their group. It's all about their authority. 
They didn't feel like this other man was authorized to do this. And so they thought they needed to do something about it. Reminds me of a story I heard another pastor tell one time about the difference between dogs and cats. I've already offended the Aggies. Now I'll offend some more people. Um, The difference between dog and cats can be summarized like this. A master begins to pet his dog and the dog wags its tail and the dog looks up at his master and says, he must be God. But a cat is petted by his or her master and the cat begins to purr and looks up at its master and says, I must be God. You know, many of you have owned cats or been owned by cats. It's probably a better way to put it. The disciples here are showing very clear cat-like qualities. They think that because Jesus has showed them grace, it's because they are worthy of it. It's because they deserve it. It's because they're in charge. It's because everything revolves around them. It's clear, isn't it, that they're obsessed with their position, with their rank, with their influence, with their little many kingdoms. Guess what? You and me are so much like the disciples. You know, as usual, the scripture here is multiple things. It's both a window into the ancient world of Jesus and into the life and teachings of Jesus, but it is also a mirror, a mirror that reflects back to us the blackness of our own hearts. Have you ever wondered why We are all like this. Why do we care so much about status? Why are we so much like the disciples here? Well, there's a lot of good answers to that question, I think. But perhaps the essential answer to that question, the essential reason that we have this deep, desperate desire for status and for recognition and for positioning in ourselves is because of our deep desire for self-justification. In other words, when we believe that if we can prove ourselves or prove to ourselves that we are at least a part of the in-group somewhere or better than others at something, then we can possibly be satisfied. Then we can possibly be happy. Then we can possibly find meaning. This is even and perhaps especially true for professing Christians, sadly. You know, faith in Christ does not immediately terminate this worldly desire for status in each of our hearts. In fact, we often misuse our faith to serve our own desires for status, like the disciples are doing here. Christianity can quickly become a source or a platform for pride with just a little twist. And almost always, the people that notice that first are those who are not Christians, those who are not yet following Jesus those who associate with us but don't agree with us. So the question that's being pressed on our hearts again and again in this text is, are you obsessed with status, with your own position, with your own reputation, with your own recognition? Do you think that this is where greatness is found? And really another question needs to be asked, how can you know? How do I know if I'm obsessed with status? How do I know if I care about my position? Well, ask yourself this. Here's a litmus test. How do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? 
or when someone treats you in a way that is below what you think you deserve or have earned. Does that make you angry? Offended? Upset? When someone does that to you, do you want to scream out, how dare you? Everyone needs to understand that I am being treated to or spoken to in a way that doesn't fit my rank. That kind of a response is almost always a sign that you are attempting to narrow the expansive kingdom of God so much that its walls only surround your own little life. See, Jesus here is attempting to turn upside down and transform our views along with the disciples' views of what true greatness is. He says that greatness does not come through status like the disciples thought. Rather, true greatness comes through service. So let's look at that idea a second. We see that greatness does not come through status, through the negative example and the, of the disciples and the positive teaching of Jesus. But Jesus also tells us here, both through his word and through his example, that greatness, real greatness, true greatness, does come through service. So back to the text, as he's told them what the, he's asked what they were discussing on the way, they keep silent, verse 34, because they know what they have been discussing and they're too embarrassed to talk to Jesus about it. And so in 35, Jesus sits everyone down and calls the 12 to himself. This is sort of a signal that this is a formal teaching moment here for Jesus. It's like Jesus is, you know, he's calling a timeout, and he's taking time to talk to his disciples about this exact point, about what true greatness is. And then he sort of gives the punchline there in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he or she must be last of all and servant of all. If you are going to be great, Jesus says, if you are going to be first, you must make it your ambition to be a servant, to be last. Think about it. Can anything possibly be more topsy-turvy than what Jesus says here? Is there any idea right, more at odds with our natural bent, with our natural disposition? Following this statement, Jesus brings out this child in verses 36 and 37 into the circle of the disciples. Now, interestingly here, Jesus would have spoken the language of Aramaic along with his disciples. And in the Aramaic language, the word for child and the word for servant are almost identical. The disciples would have picked up on that. And so there's a pun here. There's a play on words here that we don't grasp in the English translation. Jesus is associating the true greatness qualities, servant-like qualities with this child. But then he uses the child as sort of a living, vivid illustration. Look at what he does. He takes the child in his arms and he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but the one who sent me. That is, my Father. What Jesus is saying here is that whoever can welcome and relate to those who have no standing, to those who have no status, to those who have no influence, no power, no respect, whoever can do that, that is the person that will truly receive me. That is the person that will be a part of my kingdom. Because true greatness does not come to you when you finally get into the club or into the fraternity 
or into the organization or into the social circle of your dreams. True greatness comes, according to Jesus, when you accept, embrace, and welcome, and even become like the least of these, like those on the margins, like those on the periphery of society. You know, someone once asked, I believe it was Mother Teresa, this is possibly apocryphal, but I've heard this uh, recounted multiple times. Someone once asked Mother Teresa, who is going to be closest to Jesus in heaven? Is it going to be one of the great Christian heroes of the past, perhaps Moses or Elijah or David? And Mother Teresa is said to have replied, it's going to be someone that none of us have ever met, that have spent their lives serving the poor and serving Christ on the margins of this world. It's going to be someone that we would never recognize, that's never going to be in the spotlight. What Jesus is getting at is this. Whoever can admit that they are nobody by being willing to serve and welcome everybody can finally begin to become somebody. Whoever can admit that they are a nobody by being willing to serve and welcome everybody can finally begin to become somebody in Jesus. Now I want to close by asking two questions and then we're finished, okay? So as we think about true greatness coming through service, two questions that we need to think about are this. Why is it that true greatness comes through service, and then how do we get it? So first, why does true greatness come through service? Why is this the matrix, you know, by which Jesus looks at the world and wants us to look at the world? Well, again, there's probably a lot of good answers to that question too. But perhaps the main reason the Bible gives for that question. The main reason that true greatness comes through service is because when you are serving someone other than yourself, you are in that moment more reflecting the character of God himself than when you were only serving yourself. You see, true greatness comes through service because God himself is the greatest of all beings and God himself is the greatest of all servants. The scriptures tell us that God is love. And Jesus tells us elsewhere that whoever loves me is the one who will lay down his life for his friends. In other words, true love is not just saying, I love you and being super romantic. It is serving. It is giving up yourself for the sake of another. And that fundamentally is what God himself is like. You know that that's what the real God is like? You know that? The real God is not a God that exists only to have you serve him, although you should certainly serve him. The real God, the Christian God, the living God who made all things and who right now sustains all of our lives is the kind of God that calls us to serve him by showing us how much he serves us in Jesus. And so the reason that service is true greatness is because when you are serving, you are really bearing God's image more than perhaps at any other time. Secondly, if all that's true, how do I grow in this kind of greatness? How do I aspire to and attain true greatness, true service? Well, we can only grow in servant greatness when we begin to understand what the disciples couldn't understand here, you see. We can only grow in servant greatness when we see 
and believe and rest in the reality that God in Jesus has served us. That's what he's getting at after all in verse 31. In his suffering and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus is serving you and he's serving me. He is doing the greatest thing imaginable, saving the world by becoming the greatest servant imaginable. Jesus is taking your sin and the curse of this world on himself so that you don't have to endure it. And when you can see that, when you can see by faith in your heart that Jesus Christ, purely out of his own love for the world, served you, even at the cost of his own life, even at a painful cross, when you can see that Jesus is that kind of servant by faith, it will, it will begin to transform you. Only when you understand that God loves you that much. You know how our kids sometimes say, Mom, Dad, I love you this big. That's what God is saying to you on the cross He loves you so much that Jesus had to die to secure your pardon. And only when you understand the depths of the love of God for you, so deep that he put his only son to death, and that the love of God for you in faith can be secured forever, only when you understand that will you begin to have a transformation of identity that leads you to think, not of yourself first, not of status, but rather of service. So how do you become great? Well, you become great by looking at the greatness of Jesus for you. How do you become a servant? How do you get the power you need to be self-giving instead of self-serving? Well, you get the power you need to give yourself to others when you trust that Jesus gave himself for you. When you believe that on the cross, Jesus is taking your sin and your shame and your guilt free of charge because he loves you, because he chose to serve you in his death. When you believe that, it begins to, it begins to work on you so that over time you become less and less and less concerned with status and more and more and more concerned with service. That's why Jesus says that we are to love one another just as he has loved us. The power for servant greatness rests in seeing and believing that Jesus is the great servant savior for us. Who is the greatest character in the Lord of the Rings? Don't give away the answer. You ever thought about that? As an unofficial Tolkien critic, um, that's, a, that's a question that I've thought about a lot. You know, you might say it's Gandalf, the great wizard, right, who stands up to the evil forces. You might say it's Frodo, who carries the ring. You might say it's Aragorn, the king, who triumphs in the end. But I actually think that the greatest hero in the Lord of the Rings is Sam. Sam the servant. Sam the one who was willing to carry his friend up the mountain. And when his friend couldn't help himself, was willing to even, to even risk giving up his own life to save his friend. Sam is the great hero of Lord of the Rings. And that's one of the br- many brilliant things about the Lord of the Rings. Is that Sam is showing us in that story what 
true greatness is. True greatness is not when you're recognized as the king. True greatness is not when you have the power of a wizard. True greatness is when you are willing to give yourself to serve others. And you can only do that when you know that Jesus gave himself to serve you. Let's pray.